Well, thank you, Steve. Good morning to you. All right? Good? All right. Uh, if you're new, my name is Steve, also Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, just shout Steve, and one of us will come find you if you need help. Uh, if you are new, welcome to Citadel Square. You picked a great Sunday to join us. We are going to look at uh, an incredibly popular parable in the life of Jesus' teaching. Um, it's not very, if you were to make a catalog of the teachings that are the most popular of Jesus Christ, what you're going to have here is probably one of the very top ones that would come to mind. This is a parable that you could mention. It's mentioned in, in the media. It's mentioned on blogs. It's mentioned as an example. Uh, you can use it at work with your family, and virtually everybody will know what you're talking about when you mention the Good Samaritan. So if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We landed last week talking um, about discipleship with Jesus and Jesus rejoicing and giving great thanks for the fact that God, his Father in heaven, has revealed these things, the truth of Jesus, his ministry, what he's come to do to these little children, these disciples who are just uh, surprised at how much Jesus is doing through their ministry. They come back rejoicing. Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And rejoice as well that, um, and he rejoices at what God has done in revealing these things uh, to these disciples. So we ended last week with an incredible amount of joy and excitement and um, really fulfillment of the fact that Jesus has called us into relationship with himself to walk out of this identity of being called by him with our names written in heaven, ready to obey him and ready to go forward. Well, uh, today, like I said, we come to this incredibly well-known parable called the Good Samaritan. It's uh, only Luke records the Good Samaritan. It's amazing how popular it is because it only shows up in one gospel writer's account here in Luke chapter 10. Uh, no matter where you mention this, uh, if you mention it with family, with friends, in the workplace, virtually everybody can give you an example or tell a story of a Good Samaritan moment that they either did or that they had read about. And it's often used as kind of an example parable, right? It's used in such a way for it to be kind of an ethical model so that when we, it's, it's written or it's referred to in the context of our culture, it's pointed to as a fact of like, this, this restores my faith in human spirit. This, here was an opportunity where somebody went out of their way to serve in a moment of crisis, a moment of need, and often to serve someone that they had very little relationship with. So it's used as this ethical, moral example to, to give us kind of encouragement that, hey, there are good people out there. Isn't that, doesn't that help and, and warm your heart? And uh, I mean, let's be honest, like I could be more kind, amen? I could be more gracious. I could be more generous. I could be more selfless. I could be just better. And, and I hope that you feel that as well. And when we read the Good Samaritan, uh, we need to ask kind of that question. Is the Good Samaritan there to give us sort of an ethical model? Is it there to give us just some, some, some attaboy and some good moral encouragement to, to, you know, not pass by the person with the flat on the road? I grew up with a dad who did that all the time. He'd always stop and help. And I thought, is this what it means? So that every time I drive by somebody with a flat on the road, I always feel just a little bit, lot bit guilty. <laughs> that I should have... I should have done, I don't care if I have six screaming, screaming kids in the car, I should have stopped and, and done something. So we need to ask that question. Is this here really just to kind of make us feel generally, vaguely guilty about how loveless we are? Is that the point of it? Or does Jesus use this parable to teach us something very important? And to understand really why Jesus gives this parable is we have to understand the context. The parable of the Good Samaritan preaches itself. It's really easy. It's, it's incredibly simple. Uh, you read it and it's very easy to understand. Anybody could recite it and tell it to somebody else. But the lead up and the setup for the parable is really what gives the parable its punch. For us to understand why is it that Jesus would give us this parable uh, to help us understand something very, very important about what he's come to do and why he's here. All right? So that's what we're going to look at here today. What is the point of the Good Samaritan? Um, did you find Luke 10? Y'all there? All right, let's pray. Father, for these few minutes as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we look into our, your word, 
We pray that we might learn and see something about you that maybe we haven't seen before. Would we learn something about ourselves here today that you might expose us and convict us of sin where we need to be exposed and convicted? That you'd teach us that your word would take root in our hearts and that we'd leave this place loving you more. That we'd leave this place thankful for who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That you would strengthen us, that you'd equip us, that you'd uh, give us the perspective that we need to walk out of this place filled with faith, filled with confidence that Jesus loves us and has a purpose and a plan for all the relationships in our life. Would you do that? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, look with me at Luke chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 25 till about 37 is where we're going to be. So let's look at the Good Samaritan here together. Luke 10, 25. And behold. Now Luke has done this all through his his gospel. He usually uses this word behold uh, to grab your attention. He does it with uh, behold a woman from the city who came in to eat dinner with Jesus and the Pharisees. He says behold a man with leprosy. We saw that back in about Luke chapter 4. So this, this pivot here, this parable of the Good Samaritan in context lies between Jesus praising his heavenly father for the fact that he reveals things to the, to the little children to the humble, to those who don't have it all together, and conceals it from the wise and understanding. And then it lies between the context of what we'll look at next week is Martha and Mary, who are wrestling, and Martha is, is wrestling with serving Jesus. So it, it lies in a very interesting spot in Luke's text between these, these two uh, relational moments. And we're introduced to somebody here in this story who doesn't have a lot of relationship with Jesus. The disciples have been walking with Jesus for a while. Mary and Martha know Jesus very well, but they're somewhat of an outsider. And you'll see how he's introduced here. He's called a lawyer. Now, the lawyers have only been mentioned one time so far in Luke's gospel, and it would, they were mentioned back in reference to John's baptism, where Luke recorded for us that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purposes for them by not listening and not following through, not obeying the things that John was saying. So right as this story opens up, we're a little bit prepared. We, we're kind of, um, our, our guard is up. We're prepared maybe for some conflict. We're prepared for Jesus and a religious leader to go back and forth on an idea. And that's in fact what we get. This lawyer who, uh, if you don't know, this lawyer would spend the majority of his career in study primarily of the first five books of the Old Testament. They were skilled and experts at law interpretation. They were always working to try to understand the law better and then therefore to apply it to themselves and to their culture. So this was one of the religious elite. He's done the time. He has the degrees. He knows his Bible well. And what he does is come to this traveling itinerant preacher who's had an incredible influential ministry in their day and time as he's on his way to Jerusalem and this lawyer encounters Jesus and decides what Luke records for us here to put him to the test. Now that's a word that really isn't, doesn't have a lot of um, negative connotation at the beginning of the story. We don't really know what he's going to ask. We just know that he wants to have a, a mano e mano, a conversation between religious teacher to religious teacher. And as he does so, he wants to have a conversation with Jesus, maybe about significant spiritual realities, significant law truths from God's word. And he wants to press on Jesus to know, does Jesus believe like I believe? Does Jesus think like I think? Does he have the same convictions that I have? And this was part of the Jewish culture at this time that religious leaders would spend a lot of time pushing and pulling and dialoguing over ideas. So here comes this lawyer, this Old Testament expert, to ask Jesus to put him to the test to evaluate. Is Jesus good at what he does? Does Jesus know what he's talking about? Does Jesus know the law like I know the law? So look at what he says. The lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, very respectful term of address to another teacher. This is a teacher to teacher conversation. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's a pretty good question, right? I mean, if you're going to spend any amount of time in philosophy and religious thought in the study of the scriptures, that's a great question. It's an essential question. Anybody who's at all spiritually minded should ultimately come to that kind of question, right? That's the point. That's the point. That's the issue. 
But what I want you to see is the way he phrases the question, because the way he phrases the question hides an assumption. See, he could have asked a different question. He could have asked, how do I obtain eternal life? But that's not the question he asks. You see that? His question presumes an assumption. He comes to Jesus presuming that he's got responsibilities to God. There are some things that I've got to do. There are some behaviors. There are some standards. There are some rules that need to be kept in order for me to inherit eternal life. Now, the inherit word is a future term. It's a future tense verb, which means you could ask this question. When I inherit eternal life, what are the things that I have done? By having done these things, what guarantees me a positive and a beneficial future? How do I get to heaven? How do I have right standing with God? How do I determine that the end of my life will be met with peace and joy and welcome and life from God himself? So he starts with a question I think a lot of us would wrestle with. A lot of us would say, anybody really, if you stop them on the street and you say, what do you need to do to inherit eternal life, would give you a list. They'd give you rules to keep. They'd give you behaviors that you ought to have. They, get, they would give you performance metrics that would determine for them some sense of spiritual security in their relationship with God. Some measure of confidence that my, I might have before God himself. So watch what Jesus does. It's brilliant. It's humble. It's insightful. Jesus knows who he's talking. Would you say Jesus knows how to have a conversation? Would you say that Jesus understands who he's talking about to? And it's incredible what Jesus says next, because you might expect Jesus just to have a teacher-to-teacher conversation. Well, here's what I think. What do you think? Well, no, here's what I think. Here's what you think. And Jesus doesn't do that. He's brilliant. Jesus is brilliant. You can write that down. He's brilliant in what he says. Look at verse 26. He immediately moves his conversation out of a mano y mano conversation. Now, we're not going to talk about what I think and what you think and then what you think and what I, we're not going to have that kind of conversation. I'm going to appeal to a level of authority that's above both you and I. Look at what he says. He said to him, what is written in the law? And the lawyer's got to be going... I love the law. Why, Jesus, I'm glad you asked. I know the law. I've spent a lot of time in the law. I know the Bible. I can quote chapter and verse. Jesus, what a great question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? See, Jesus moves the conversation up. He moves the conversation away from what I think and you think to a point where we both believe that God has spoken. We both have a, a divine shared respect for an authority that is above this conversation, which tells you two things. One, it tells you how Jesus views the Old Testament scriptures, doesn't it? It tells you that Jesus finds God's revelation in the Old Testament not as kind of old and crusty and hard to read, but as incredibly important to reveal the values, the truths, the convictions, the light that God has given to us and to his Old Testament people Israel. So Jesus says, let's discover the answer to your question and let's go to our Bibles. Let's look at what the Old Testament has to say about this question. What are the things that you need to do to inherit eternal life? So that Jesus says, this isn't just a reference book we're going to return to, but we believe that God has spoken, amen? That we believe that God has said something to us, that God has an opinion on these things, which leads us to point number two. It matters very little what Steve Heron has to say about inheriting eternal life. It matters a whole bunch if God has an answer to that question. Amen? Amen? It matters a whole bunch if God has actually answered the question that this lawyer is posing before Jesus. So if you're in conversation with people who ask you spiritually minded questions, one of the best things that you can do is say something very simple. I don't know, what does the Bible say? I don't have all the answers, but I'd be willing to read the Bible with you. 
Because I believe that God has spoken and God has given us information. God hasn't left us alone to navigate our spiritual lives just floating in the dark depending on what we feel. We believe that God has said something to us about spiritual matters. So if you're in those conversations, you can be just like Jesus and say, what does the Bible say? Let's see what the Bible says. So here's the, here's the lawyer. He's ready to go. He's got this, I mean, just locked and loaded. Verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you have cross references in your Bible, you probably have two of them that refer to exactly what the lawyer just said there. You have Deuteronomy chapter 6. Move your head in a direction. Let's me know you're Okay, do not say. And then you should also have a spot in Leviticus, right? Leviticus chapter 19. So the lawyer has spent, this is interesting to me, the lawyer has spent enough time in his study of the Old Testament scriptures to be able to distill them to one verse. The lawyer has spent enough time reviewing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy to get to the point in his studies where he recognizes the Old Testament isn't just a list of rules and regulations, but the essence of the Old Testament is given so that we might understand the whole of the Old Testament is built on the foundation of love. The expression, the understanding we ought to have when we come to the scriptures is to see how has God declared that we ought to love him and therefore love one another. And a lot of times we read the Bible and we go, I'm not really sure what to do with the oxen and the goats and the, and the sacrifice and lay the hands and the wash the clothes and the don't go mold and tear down the house if it has mold. I don't know what to do with that. That doesn't really help me. But it helps us for an Old Testament professional to synthesize the, the Old Testament at that time and to say it's all about love. It's all about, number one, making God the absolute center of my life. He's the anchor point out of which every single area of my life flows. Everything that I, every element of my heart, my soul, my strength, my mind, everything should come back to the fact that my primary and supreme guiding principle is love of God. What am I thinking about? Whatever God says to love. What am I working on? The things of greatest priority to God. Everything in my life should flow from a significant love relationship of God and who he is. And number two, the lawyer says from Leviticus chapter 19 that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now, unless you think this is merely just an Old Testament synthesis, this shows up in the New Testament as well. Let me give you a couple places. Romans 13, 9 says this, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, all restrictions, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Romans 13. Galatians 5, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So even Paul takes an understanding, Paul, an Old Testament pro, in his writings can understand that all of the laws that God gives in the Old Testament are meant to inform our love of God and our love of neighbor. So that's, this is no new information. But for this lawyer, he's hit it out of the park. He nailed it. Look at what Jesus says in verse 28. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. You know what the word for correctly is in the Greek? It's ortho. It's the same, it's the root word out of which we get orthodoxy, orthopraxy. This guy hit the nail on the head. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now that should be the end of the conversation, right? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Just love God like crazy in every single area of life. Have no failure in any aspect, heart, soul, mind, strength, whatsoever. Also, love your neighbor as yourself. Put the same kind of priority into your neighbor relationships. The Hebrew word for neighbor means those who are near. That's the idea. 
is that you should put the same kind of priority of love and care and attention and affection you give to yourself into the social context you are in with those who are close to you. Now, that should, that should, I mean, the whole thing should be done right there, right? Jesus says, do this, keep doing this, make this your primary and only goal in life, and you will live. So what has Jesus done? He's, he's affirmed the law, hasn't he? But he's also kind of confronted this works righteousness that this man has, doesn't he? Because love the Lord your God, I, it, I can't really, give me some details, right? Love your neighbor. Well, how? Give me some rules so that I can know I'm keeping them and I can feel good about myself, right? Luke 10, 29. You'll notice that Luke begins this story giving you an inner window to the motivations of the lawyer, right? He stood up desiring to put Jesus to the test. You'd never know that about the lawyer in conversation, would you? You would just think this is a great theological conversation between two teachers. You wouldn't understand, unless Luke gives it to you, that the lawyer has a goal of pressing on Jesus and what Jesus thinks. And now we're introduced to another internal motivation that you wouldn't see necessarily unless Luke gives it to you. Because we all have this internal motivation. We all have a kind of a little bit of a question in our hearts, don't we? We all are looking for something to make us feel like we're okay. We're good. And what's fascinating to me and what he says next here in verse 29 is that he doesn't talk about his relationship with God. Isn't that interesting? No? That's okay. I find that incredibly interesting. Verse 29, but he... Desiring to justify himself. Now we've taken this conversation about theological ideas and Old Testament realities and we've got to apply it to me. Because I need to know that I'm okay, Jesus. I need to know that I have right standing. I need to know that ultimately when I reach the end of my life that I will be found worthy. That I will be accepted. That I will be welcomed into eternal life. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, for almost all of us, our relationship with God, you can ask anybody, our relationship with God is pretty subjectively defined, right? Does God like me? I don't know. I don't have any great problems in my life right now. I must be doing pretty well. God must be approving of me. But then if I have great trials and great trouble in my life, I typically go, man, I've done something wrong and God's trying to, to discipline me and something has gone totally bad in my life. I need to get my life right back on track so that God will accept me and receive me again. And we typically have that kind of internal dialogue. We don't really rest on the grace of God. We really rest on our own small L version of law in our lives. And here's this man who who will take his relationship with God for granted and assume that, well, look at me. I'm an Old Testament professional. I, I have lots of great friends. I'm in the, the most significant religious and spiritual community I can find. And he still can't find justification. His heart still haunts him because he, he hasn't found that sense of peace. So I know what it must be. I need some more rules, Jesus. I know what I need. I just need you to tell me what are the things that I need to do. Now, the love God thing, I've got that. My whole life is about the study of the scriptures. But you know what I really struggle with, Jesus, is people. Isn't that where you struggle to? Loving God is great. God's gracious. God's kind. God's perfect. God made everything. God keeps and sustains me. He allows my eyes to see my, my, my breathing to go in and out. God's pretty easy to love. You know where I have a problem loving? People. You have that too? Amen. <laughs> Amen. And here's this man's question. Who's my neighbor? Now what, what, what does that do? What, what, what does that question do? Who is my neighbor? Jesus, will you give me a list of people that make the cut, that deserve my love? 
And alternatively, will you tell me who I don't have to love? Right? Isn't that? Who is mine? Which ones? Now, the Jewish society, we've seen this all through the book of Luke, because Luke is the gospel for the outsider. Luke is for the people who are far off. And all through Luke's gospel, we've been, in, we've been introduced to this pharisaical lawyer way of living, to those who are inside, those who are outside, those who are accepted, those who are not. So part and parcel of the Jewish way of thinking is there are people I don't owe love to. There are people I don't have to reach out to. There are people who are, God doesn't even love those people over there. So God, would you just kind of define my community for me so that I can feel good about the people I need to love, so that I can just kind of build my religious behaviors into my current social context and feel pretty good about who I am as a spiritual person. So God, who, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now all of that, is the background to the Good Samaritan. You with me so far? You got all that background? And now Jesus, here comes Jesus with the heat. This is the 101 mile per hour fastball. So we need to know the entire background to the Good Samaritan story is what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? Show me the kind of person. What are the behaviors? Give me the rules. Verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho drops about 3,500 feet over the course of 15 miles. It's a steep, narrow, treacherous kind of road. The Jews would know it. The Jews would travel from Jerusalem down to Jericho, where you'll see in this parable many of the priests lived. The priests would travel from Jericho up to Jerusalem to do their priestly duties at the time, and then they'd come back down this same road to live in Jericho. So Jesus begins with an individual that, by all accounts... Most of the people who are hearing this parable, the lawyer would certainly think that this man is a Jew because he's leaving Jerusalem to head to Jericho. But you'll note that Jesus gives zero explanation for who this man is. Do you see that? There's nothing about his background, his occupation, whether he's wealthy, whether he's wicked or good, whether he deserves what, about, what is about to come on him or whether he is totally innocent. All of those factors are completely wiped away And when Jesus says a man, a certain man, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. The robbers stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. He's gotten beaten so bad that he's fighting for his life on the side of the road. Verse 31. Now by chance. It just so happens. Jesus. Isn't Jesus a great storyteller? Can you believe it? There's this awful scenario. This person is beaten within an inch of their life. And can you imagine? There comes somebody who just happens by. By chance. A priest. Oh my gosh, a priest. He, don't miss this. this. I'm doing this for a reason. This is how you should feel. A priest. A religious professional. Somebody who's a descendant from the tribe of Aaron, whose entire job is to take care of the temple and the sacrifices to know and teach the word. He's a full-time minister. He's as an expert in the law and the truth of God and what it demands of him as the lawyer is. And it just so happens that here he is, a person in full-time ministry who's committed his whole life to serving God in the, the, the religious temple complex and serving the people of God through what he's doing. He's on his way to going down that road. The priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Huh. He saw him, 
He passed by on the other side. Verse 32, so likewise a Levite. Now a Levite is not one of Aaron's family. The priests were descended only from Aaron and would have a role in the temple complex. Only they could go into the Holy of Holies. Only they could sacrifice the animals. But the Levites were not a part of Aaron's family, but were still within the tribe. So they ended up being a part of the, essentially the priest's assistants. So they would have responsibility for the temple artifacts, for the, the uh, guarding the temple complex. They were essentially the second group of people who were involved in religious ministry for the people of God. So Jesus is doing a great job letting you know that the people who are finding this man, the people who are stumbling upon this scenario, are not ignorant people. There are people well-versed in the scriptures. They're well-versed in what the law demands God's people to do and who got what the law demands them to be. They've taught Sunday school classes on loving others. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. You notice what Luke has given us so far in this story? is that he's given us the motivations of the lawyer twice. He stood up to put Jesus to the test, and he wants to justify himself. Do you notice how in the parable, though, he hasn't given you any motivations of the characters yet? You notice that? Why is that? Well, for the most part, I think the reason Jesus does that is for us to just get uncomfortable with it. Because where do all, like, where do all of my excuses live? They all live in here. Right? They all live on, gosh, I've got a lot of things to do today, and I've got a lot of places to be, and I'm really, I don't, I'm kind of at the end of my money for this month, and I really don't have a chance to be generous. I really don't have a lot of time. I really got some other things, other priorities, really good priorities in my life that I've got to give myself to. I really don't have a lot of time to love and serve others. Like, I, I know that's important out there somewhere, but Jesus knows that. I fill up my life with a lot of good things. Like, I don't, I don't you know, I'm just busy. See, all that happens up here. But what Jesus wants you to see is the fact that these are religious professionals and their failure is not in their excuses. Their failure is in their inaction, right? You should look at this story and go, they should have done something. The reason this parable has power is because of their inaction. Because they haven't done anything. No matter what they thought, no matter what they feel. And it's really useless. They're imaginary characters in a story. It's, a, it's useless for us to, con, to have kind of conjecture and to think about what their motivations were. Jesus doesn't give them to us because that's not the point. He just simply wants you to see that the priests, the Levites, and therefore the lawyer has not done what they've needed to do. Now what you might expect in the story is a simple Israelite, Right? If Jesus was going after the priests and the Levites of the day and condemning the religious system of Judaism, you'd expect like some farmer with a hoe on his shoulder, right? But the power in the parable is what Jesus says next because Jesus introduces a character that is a total shock. Nobody would think this character has anything worthwhile to give. They were despised people in the society. We looked at them a couple weeks ago, but they were half-breeds as a result of the Assyrians coming in and taking the northern tribes out and resettling with Assyrians. They had a different temple. They had a different worship system. They had a different worship style. They weren't welcomed among God's people. They were hated and despised and wanted nothing to do with the Jews. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. Now, I had never seen this before. I've read this parable before. You've probably read this parable before. But I'd never seen it until I looked at this this week. Did you notice that with the priest and the Levite, they both made reference to the place they encountered? Did you see that? That the priest, go back up and look at it with me. The priest was going down that what? That road. And then the Levite when he came to the place where he saw him. But when Jesus tells the story of the Samaritan, the Samaritan doesn't come to a place, he comes to a person. 
See, the Samaritan's eyes are open to the relational opportunities that are in front of him. Just imagine that you go on vacation and people go, where'd you go? We took a vacation uh, two summers ago. We drove to Dallas in July. Why we did that, I don't know. Visit family, they had a pool, it was great. And the way, usually, when you say, well, where are you going to go? We're going to drive to Dallas. Okay, we drove to Dallas. And people usually would give you the route that you take. How do you get to Dallas? Well, you get on here, you go up 26, and then you go to 95, and you head down to 40, and you go across. And right? That's the route that you get to Dallas. You, you do it by location. Because if you want to get to Dallas, I've got to give you directions. But imagine we took that trip to Dallas, and I described the whole of the trip in relationship with the people we met. We met. Well, how did you get to Dallas? Well, first, we went to, uh, we went to BP, and Patrick works at BP, and Patrick has two dogs, and Patrick loves working at BP because it gives him some extra time to see his daughter on the weekends. And he takes those two dogs with his daughter down to the beach, and then, well, okay, and where did you go next? Well, and then we went to the truck stop. The truck stop, we went to, uh, during the time on our trip to Dallas, we went to the, um, what's it called? Not Sparky, thank you. Bucky's. We went to, ever been to Bucky's? <laughs> Bucky's is like, I grew up in Los Angeles, so I've been to the real Disneyland. Bucky's is like Disneyland with a gas station. And imagine I went to Bucky's and I didn't tell you about the brisket sandwiches. I didn't tell you about the, the beef jerky. And I didn't tell you about all the candy that my kids got. I told you about Dave. And Dave works the register. And Dave's been retired for four or five years. And Dave just buried his wife three years ago. And Dave is still trying to fill his days with what it means to be a widower. And then I would tell you about the story where we stopped at Whataburger and we got, finally got to Texas and Texas has a Whataburger. Whataburger is one of my wife's favorite places and I told you the story of the two, um, what are they called? The people who sell you the burgers. The what? The servant. The servants? <laughs> the cashiers. There we go. There, so I'm telling you about the two, right? Do you, see, do you get my point? That if I describe everywhere I go with all the people I talk to, you go, I don't, I still don't know how to get to Dallas. But here's the Samaritan whose whole perspective is consumed with the fact that there's this person in front of him in need. And here he is, he journeys and he comes to the place where he was. The road, the robbers, the caves, the treachery, the journey, none of it matters except for this person that's right in front of him. And when he saw him, he had what? Compassion. The only time Luke has used that term is back when Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son. It's a Greek word that you can't even pronounce. It's so complex. But it means the deepest part of who you are. That what flows out of the Samaritan's heart is this twisted agony of love for this person who is half dead in front of him. And when he came, when he saw him, he had compassion. Now everything that flows from here is just a litany of verbs. I think there are something like 50, word, like 50 words up to this point have been used in Jesus' parable. There are 50 in just these two verses next. So the whole parable focuses your mind and attention on everything that the Samaritan does. It, it, it preaches itself. Verse 34, number one, he went to him. He approached the person who was half dead. Number two, he bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, which means that now he had to walk. He set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. He spent the night with him. Look at verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Here's a blank check for anything and everything this wounded man needs. I'm going to leave. Here's my credit card. Who would take this much time? Who would be this generous? 
Who would give up all the stuff that they had to do, the plans that they had? This man probably, most of the Jews would think this is a traveling merchant at the time. How many sales he gave up? How much time he sacrificed? Imagine in 2024 coming along somebody paying for a hotel room, putting them in the bed, and you laying in the bed in the same room with them. That's the, you can't, Jesus, you're kidding me. Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Story is over. Let's see Jesus apply the parable of the Good Samaritan. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? You see what Jesus just did? See, the lawyer said there are certain people out there who are neighbors and not neighbors. Certain people I have responsibility two and four, and other people I don't have responsibility to and four. And Jesus says, I have an issue with the way you define that term neighbor. See, the lawyer wanted to know, when do I have the right to stop? When do I have the right to not go any further in my love of others? And Jesus says, literally the word, if that word proved is the word became which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? See, if the lawyer would tell this parable, he'd give you a lot more about the man, wouldn't he? He'd give you a whole list of things about whether a man was a Jew or not, whether he was righteous or not, whether he was a part of the family or not, whether he was in or not, whether he was acceptable or not. And Jesus intentionally twists the parable in such a way to give you nothing about the man. Nothing about his situation, nothing about his background, nothing, no marks socially to determine whether or not I owe him love or I'm free to walk away. Which of them do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. Now you wouldn't see this in, in this translation, but... It, the word for showed is the word do. So that the lawyer says, the one who, who did mercy to him. Now remember how this story started. How this conversation started. Back up in verse 25. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus in verse 28. Do this and you will live. And now the lawyer has to be resigned to the fact that the person who is the hero in the story, the person who would have been the outsider to the Jews and the religious establishment of the day, has shown far more faithfulness and kindness and goodness and righteousness than the lawyer has. Several commentators note the fact that the lawyer can't even bring himself to say his name. He just simply calls him the one who did mercy. And Jesus said, here's the fourth time this word do is mentioned. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do. So let's talk about why this parable is here. Why is the good Samaritan given by Jesus? He's given so that we might know no amount of loving sacrifice is ever enough to earn our right standing before God. See, a lot of times we look at the law, this is kind of a breakdown of like laws of commission, things that I do that I know are wrong, and things of omission, things that I ought to do that I've failed to do. And many people like to reduce their spiritual life and their relationship with God with just good behaviors, bad behaviors. But if this is the standard, if the good Samaritan is the standard by which Jesus says you will earn eternal life, then I'm sunk. I have failed to love so many times in my life. There have been so many opportunities to be sacrificially generous and caring and others focused and I have failed to do them. 
I mean, until I'm confronted with a story like the Good Samaritan, I think I'm a pretty good guy. I'm nice to baristas. <laughs> right? I pay my taxes. I generally don't speed to a degree. Right? I have a whole list of things that I would say, I'm not, I'm not bad, I'm a good citizen. Like they wouldn't lock me up, I'd get out quick. But you're telling me, Jesus, Jesus, you're telling me the standard of eternal life is this kind of sacrificial, generous love? Well, then what hope do I have? See, a lot of times in our culture right now that you're justified by your empathy, aren't you? You're justified because you care a lot about certain just sin messes that are out there. And there's a lot of conversation demanding your emotional investment and your emotional engagement for things. And a lot of it is a desire to be justified by my empathy. That if I care a lot, therefore I'm a righteous person. I'm a good person. But the good Samaritan is there to explode that whole idea to go, you're not this empathetic. You're not this generous with your time. You're not this selfless. You're not this caring. You're not this others focused the way you ought to be. And Jesus confronts the lawyer with the fact that none of us truly love our neighbor. And none of us can deserve heaven because of our efforts to love our neighbor. So the Good Samaritan is kind of a disappointing parable, isn't it? Because it ends and you can feel the lawyer is on the hook. So, as we prepare our hearts for communion, we can't reduce God's requirements to love, can we? In fact, Jesus talks about this. He says, the world will know you by your what? By your love. The church is to be known by its love, known by its care, known by its compassion. Known by all the one another passages that exist in the scriptures. But the church doesn't find our justification in our love for others. The church finds its justification, finds our right standing before God in his love for us. In what he has done to save us. Nowhere is this clearer than in 1 John. And if you turn with me to 1 John, we'll close here. Turn over to 1 John chapter 4 with me. What should capture our minds and hearts in a story like this is how much Jesus loves the unlovable. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Here's what John says. He puts these two ideas right together. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, up to this point, John, I would say, John, you're giving us some pretty good ethical encouragement, right? We got to be loving. I got to be loving. I got to be more loving. I am not that loving. John, you're right. I need, hey, I need to love better. Verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. See what John did? John said, here's who you ought to be, but let me show you who God is. Let me show you how God made his love known. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We might, what? Live. What was the lawyer's whole concern? Eternal life. What do I need to do to get eternal life? And God said, I had to send my son to give you eternal life. Verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God. That's not the standard. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why in the world does John put right in the middle of all this ethical encouragement about love, the fact that somebody had to die to take the wrath of God to take your sins away. Why did he do that? What is the means of forgiveness for my lack of love? If the good Samaritan is the standard by which I am going to be held to an account, I need a savior, amen? 
I need someone to stand in between. I need someone who helps this broken, twisted, selfish heart of mine. I need God to send someone to pay the penalty for my sinful lack of loving others. This is love. That he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. See what John did? He makes love not the ground of our justification. He makes God's love the ground of our justification. He says we can love others because we have been freely loved by God. This is what several commentators note about the verses that this lawyer quotes. This lawyer quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. And you'll note what the lawyer said. You shall love the Lord your God. Now I'm no biblical expert, but I know that Deuteronomy follows Exodus. You with me? Which tells you that God did the greatest act of salvation the Jewish people had ever known, which was to bring people who are sinners into right relationship with himself because of an act of God to rescue them from their sin. So that when you get to the New Testament, we have the very same thing. The reason we love is because Christ loved us. The only way that we're going to be able to not love in this desperate attempt to be accepted by God, but love out of the fact that I am already accepted by God, is to rest in the fact that God loved me enough to pay the penalty for my sin. And therefore, every genuine act of caring for others, every genuine step that I take to sacrificially love and serve others can come from a place where I'm already accepted. Amen? That I can already move out of that in freedom and joy, acknowledging that Christ paid the penalty for my sin. He is the one who gave me the means of forgiveness for my loveless and selfish heart. See, the Good Samaritan is a high standard, but we have a great Savior in Jesus who moved toward those with twisted and sinful and self-justifying hearts to give us freedom so that we might be able to love others well. Father, we pause as we prepare our hearts for communion here, and we confess that the Good Samaritan is a high call and one that we could never reach. But as Paul says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, we gain great confidence in the fact that we can find acceptance not because of what we have done to try to justify ourselves, but you justify us freely as a gift by sending your son to be the one who takes away our sin. So in that we gain great thanks and great hope confronted in this parable with the fact that none of us measure up, but that you sent our, your son to save sinners like us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.